Greetings. You're now entering the podcast of elegance and class. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Chris Blunt. Welcome to Chris Talks the Podcast. All right, guys, I'm not going to lie to y'all. Sometimes when you work for yourself, you, you suffer <laughs> through technical difficulties. Like, this, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then, you know, I, I have to deal with some things. I have to, you know, use a little muscle, things like that, be my own IT. Um, and, and I was having a good conversation uh, with this gentleman I'm about to introduce. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> pew, like, just totally went by. So, Ghost in a machine. Yeah, for real. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to, like, we're going to try to recapture that magic. Um, which is easy because this gentleman here is a great conversationalist. Um, he has a very interesting, interesting journey, interesting life journey. Like I met this guy actually because I'm really good friends with his friends. Like we are all friends. But at one point before I knew him, I knew his friends, his very close friends. And he's one of those people. When I met him, I was like, yo, like I heard about you you're like really cool and it was almost like a fanboy thing i didn't want to be like <laughs> odd but it felt like a fanboy thing because he's done so much this gentleman is you know he's been featured in like major papers he's done um work with politics he does literary work um he's also like really into like horror movies which is of course my favorite right and um and in a lot of random trap music so he's a man that, that wears <laughs> many hats does many things and he's proficient in all of them so i'm going to introduce you all to my friend um well-renowned <laughs> gentleman uh Evlando cooper thank Evlando. You. thank you for having me welcome man let's do the thing i just want <laughs> yeah when you doing it the second go around uh-huh. I, I was thinking about you said you met me yeah and that's all very nice what he said but <laughs> when i met him this was the person that opened up for wu-tang Oh, oh! And so, oh, speaking of fans of who fans, I was a fan mm. of his music. I was a fan of his group, and mm. uh, so you know, it, admiration goes both ways. I so. appreciate that, man. I Thank you for the kind words, and I'm happy to be here. No doubt, no doubt, man. So it's been it's been quite the journey, sir. I want to say, um, I don't know. I think we've known each other for like what, like 15, easily like 15. If I go back to 20. if if I go back to when I first went to the house, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was like 99. Yeah, we used to. So that's yeah. almost 20. That's, that's 20. 20. That's 20. Yeah, I've been to the house. I used yeah, to come through to every house. couple of yes. times. I remember. Y'all was all I too remember. busy ciphering and shit. Oh, no. Remember, I was <laughs> ciphering and drunk, but I remember yeah, you. They were yeah. like, this up, oh, what's up, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was all good. And then, of course, the Chicago. You know, yes. Then Chicago happened. And uh, Chicago, I like to like, that was one of my favorite, favorite times, really. Oh, uh, to say that. You know, it came at a time where, you know, right after Hurricane Katrina, that was a, a, obviously a hard time for all of us. But I feel like we made the best of it. Yeah. And um, it turned into like an amazing experience. I'll never forget living in that house with all of you guys. It was like the real world house. I swear, like six or seven of us. Yeah. At the time, man. But it was everybody had their own little world. We lived in a big enough house where people had their space. People came in. Man. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy times. times, man. Crazy times, man. We, we threw... We threw house parties that they will talk about forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> I would if I could remember it. I know. I was drunk. I was drunk. So I don't remember all of it. But I know I had a blast. Yeah. <laughs> well, my dude, let's let's get into it, man. Let's get into it. Uh, first things first, man. Uh, with everything going on, we are in an unprecedented time in America. 
uh, we have protests um, due to, of course, the usual systemic racism and also violence amongst uh, towards black people um, by cops, by the police. Also, we are also in the middle of the COVID-19 mm-hmm. um, pandemic. How are you dealing with all of this so like, as a black man? Yeah, um, it's a contradiction. Um, my personal life, I'm I'm doing okay. Um, I, I'm still working. My wife is working. We bought a home. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're figuring out how to work from home together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my personal life is fine, but I, I definitely have had a lot of anxiety and sadness. COVID touched uh, people close to me. I know some people that, that died from it. Mm. Um, and just the general, um, you know, what's happening in society, uh, 100,000 people, 120 now, mm. no help coming, the, the economic ramifications of what's happening. Yeah, that part's tough for me, you know. So I, I personally, I feel okay, but um, I don't think how I'm going to be able to like kind of grasp the event until it's already passed, and I can look back and say, "This is what happened and why." Mm. Process it that way. Oh, but it's been right. tough, man. Just like for everybody else. Yeah, everybody else is kind of going through it. It's been a very interesting concept. I know for myself, I'm still trying to find balance with like life and business and home life yeah making sure that everybody's mentally okay making sure i'm mentally okay i think that's been a um very big challenge very big challenge for me all right so we're gonna take it all the way back man we're gonna take it all the way back um where are you from nola 504 okay new orleans let them know born and raised methodist hospital whoa uh, Ooh, New Orleans East. Everybody, everybody, we know about it. Yeah, we know about it. It's yeah. all. <laughs> I'm a, I'm New Orleans uh, through and through. Yes, yes, I feel that. I feel that. Uh, so when you you were born, everybody like is really much into the hospitals they were born in. I'm born in Toro. <laughs> That's a whole hospitals thing. and high schools. Yep, hospital <laughs> high schools, man. We we all into it, man. Tell me about like how was your home life? Uh, it was you know, looking back on it, it was pretty stable and good. Uh. You know, I'm the I'm the grandson of a of a minister who who pastor who was a pretty you know decently famous in the region uh, gospel singer, and he came to New Orleans in the early '40s and founded a church. Mm. Um, and you know, my, my dad uh, grew up in that household, and he drafted uh, to Vietnam, but went to college on the GI Bill. Uh, my mom uh, served briefly too, so. They were able to parlay that into like pretty good government jobs, like a lot of black people. It was their ticket to the middle class. So um, I might have known a little precarity as it growing up here and there, but looking back on it, I was had a pretty I had a pretty good upbringing. That's good. That's and, good. But you know, like New Orleans, like you know, we're talking about, you're always touched by something, you know. Yeah. You know, so I've seen my fair share of this, and I have my fair share of bad experiences, and you know, with police and other people but um all in all I, I i think i was blessed lucky however you want to say it yeah i think in new orleans you you can't help if especially if you're in the inner city if you're you're black in the inner city you can't help but run across certain things like you know you can't help but get crossed up at least seeing witnessing some of the drug trade yeah some of the police brutality things like that like it's something that tourists don't see tourists just come here Enjoy the food, they enjoy the French Quarter, and they get the fuck out of there. 
I mean, I, I don't know if people know this. Uh, I went to church. There was this famous story. Um, I went to church, and across the street was a little convenience store. Mm-hmm. And they had, <laughs> they pioneered putting crack rock in the little pieces of pink bubble yum. Oh, and, shit. And this was a like, big story when it happened when they bust the store. Um, and this is how they were doing their transactions. And, you know, I saw people get shot on that corner. Um, Crazy. You know, so, I mean, you're going to run into violence in the city if you're in any way connected um, to, like, say, those disparate elements. But um, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was pretty lucky. I gotta mm. say. Okay, that's good. That's good. Uh, I know that you came from like a well-educated, uh, you well-educated background, right? Um, I think you know you grew up in, of course, the nuclear family. How many siblings do you have? Me and my brother. Okay, so oh yeah, it's just you and your brother. So yeah, literally like a nuclear nuclear family. My yeah. father, two brothers, um, and you ended up going to Ben Franklin, which is one of the top schools, if not the top school at the time, uh, in the city, and also honestly one of the top schools in the U.S. How did you? That school is predominantly white. In yes. the middle of like all the blackness, I remember going to Kennedy. Kennedy was less than a mile away. And my school was definitely like Minister Society versus <laughs> Saved by the Bell. I would be pissed when I used to go visit my friends and be like, why they got all this shit? They got a fucking gym? <laughs> you, know what I'm like, you guys had everything. And I was just like, I was, I was a little tight about it. That was, was like, how did Rightfully you, so. Yeah, for real. Like, so how did you end up in like pretty much like the Willy Wonka of public schools, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so this, I don't know, this is kind of a driving personality trait of mine. I, I remember being in a barbershop. I was probably 12 years old, seventh grade, and Louisiana Weekly, um, a venerable black-owned newspaper um, in New Orleans, they had an op-ed or an article calling out Ben Franklin for discrimination, for hogging all the resources and other mm. kids. And I said, I want to go there. Not because, you know, because I had something to prove. Like, they're not going to keep me out. That was my mentality. Mm. Oh, that's, that's hard. Yeah, no, I was like, I'm, they're not going to keep me out of that. Mm. If, if, if all these advantages, why would I not want to be? Mm. And so I told my parents about Ben Franklin because they hadn't even heard of it. Mm. My dad went to 35, so that's what he had in mind for mm. me. And then, and uh, I took the test, got in, and then thought that was all I needed to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, a, I had a hard time, Ben Franklin. It's the situation where you run into, like, children who are, you know, on paper, smart and super driven. Mm-hmm. I wasn't super driven. I, I was good at what I was good at. And then I couldn't really focus on the rest. And the teachers leaned towards the quote unquote brilliant students. So that wasn't, you know, they didn't really care if I fell through the cracks. Um, to be fair, that was a situation. It was called retention. Oh, if you yes. fell below a certain grade point average, they kicked you out to school. Mm. And, you know, uh, predominantly disproportionately was black kids. Mm-hmm. not meeting retention so you already have a small black uh population then you're kicking them out because they can't make the grades they mm-hmm. saw a disconnect there so i remember as a senior because i you know made it through the skin of my teeth i was a good student and what i was good at but the other stuff like i said they didn't have any special mm. they didn't you know they some teachers tried hard but it was pretty ad hoc they sent me they sent me to some of the other public schools they encouraged black kids to to come there you know, and I remember oh, doing wow. that. Yeah, and I tried to tell them, you know, honestly, you know, you got to make it what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and and just completing there, just graduating, is often enough because what I learned there kind of set me up 
for a lot of things and for the rest of my life, believe it or not. Oh, that's that's dope. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I can imagine uh, being from such a background with a school, coming from a school with such accolades, um, that it, that definitely could help set up, set you up for the future. So you graduate from there, of course. And, but just, yeah. Just, yeah. The other thing I, that I took away from that too, though, is yeah, that cool. it's not fair that one who has all those resources either. Mm. You know, like when you get older and you look back, you realize, you know, I'm not smarter or less smart than anybody else. I just happen to have the opportunities mm-hmm. surrounded by resources and good teachers. And I was able to make of it what I would. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I I get the critiques, I get the criticisms. Um, and it just made me realize that everybody, all children deserve a chance at having the resources and environment they need to make the most of themselves. I agree. I agree. I thought that that was a, for some reason that didn't, that never made sense to me. The, the lopsided way that they went about it, you know, cause I was like, all right, cool. My, my school is in city park. I know there's rich motherfuckers around here. If you're talking about like, <laughs> if you're talking Facts. about taxes going towards schooling, right. You know, your school was on UNO's campus. Yeah. It was on a college camp. I mean, and it's yeah. a car, you know, if you think about it, it was a carve out. For rich people who didn't want to send their kids to private school. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I went to school. Like my friends at the time had a wide variety of socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, some of them, there was a some kind of a fee and some of them had trouble making a fee. Yeah. You know, you had everybody from bankers kids to like the kids dealing with real precarity in their lives at the time. So, you know, you look at it and then you see these rich kids. Yeah. Literal rich kids All pulling up on new cars. Franklin. Yeah, all my friends from Franklin were hood. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, you know, and I say, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know. All of our friends. But, you know, <laughs> I think I think if you look at it, the the the, the school demographics skewed upper middle class and up. Um, so, you know, if you think about it, even as a as a as a private school that's funded by taxpayer money, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, these are just things that I've you know, been thinking about in the last few years. But I mean, I, I will say that the education I got there, I value it and I just wish more people had access to it. Mm, indeed. So, but, and you managed to make it out. I, man, I made it out. Made it out, sir. Uh, what college did you go to? Mississippi State. MSU, Mississippi State. Starkville, Bulldogs, all that. All right, all that. Mississippi State, Mississippi State University, right? Um, now, according to one of our friends, our mutual friends. Um, you call his ass out. I should, I'm, I'm not going to call it ass out. Remind. And so like, I think that um, he had said that you used to pick cotton. Yes. Um. <laughs> yes, he said that. Were you a natural slave? <laughs> so uh, radio personality, Charlemagne the God has a saying. Uh-huh. I don't know if he stole it from somebody else, but yeah. it's... Uh, Nobody cares about the truth when the lie is more entertaining. This truth is why we have the president that we have. Yes. Go on. Yes. So I happened, I, I, you know, I was, I was there on a scholarship, but it only covered the basics. So like any other college kid, I wanted more money for whatever I needed it for. And um, I took an on-campus job. It was an ent- through an entomologist lab, a bug uh, researcher. Mm-hmm. And it said, you know, they were trying to like collect these pests that were destroying different crops which included cotton crops ah. ah and it was the highest paying job on campus so i applied for it and i called i actually called my friend to, to say hey man can you believe 
that I got this $7, $7.25 job on campus, and all I got to do is collect bugs in the cotton field? And then he said, what? You pick cotton? <laughs> and yeah. Because our friends are asking. The worst game of telephone in history. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Because I heard about it, and I was like, shit. <laughs> so let me get this straight. He goes there to, to major in poli sci and history. In Mississippi, and they tell him to pick cotton. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, yeah, I, with the legacy, I could understand how. Yes. So <laughs> exactly, how that would be problematic. Mississippi is not the most forward-thinking city. Uh, no, more no, no, forward-thinking no. state. I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, no, no, yes. no, no, no. Legacies, like, yikes! <laughs> but no, I did not pick cotton. Nice. I collected pests. Okay, in the cotton field. So how was your time there at that college in general? What what were the major things that you learned at Mississippi State? So I took my Franklin experience and I, you know, barely making it through. And um, I dedicated myself to my studies. Mm. So, you know, I was kind of already introverted. Um, and I just had this renewed vigor to like just excel, you know, which I had never really felt since I was uh in elementary school, mm-hmm. but you know it had its challenges. You know, like one, I have, I have all kinds of stories. I mean, you know, I was profiled when I walked into certain classes by professors who became very close to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had things yelled at me, people in passing cars. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I made some good friends there too. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was a, uh, it was a mixed bag. You know, I. I I don't know if I should even be saying this, but I even caught heat from uh, black professors who I admire, who, I don't know, they had this weird kind of animosity towards me um, because I wanted to excel in their class. They mm-hmm. saw that as some kind of a weird threat. Mm. So I, I caught it from all ways, you know. Yeah. But I think the proudest moment, I wrote this, um, I wrote this article about the Confederate flag the day that Trent Lott, who used to be the majority leader yes. from Mississippi, was coming to campus. And I was like, I wrote it on a lark. Like, there's no way they're going to print this. And it was all about, you know, uh, you know, of course, bullshit legacy, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And the paper printed it. And, you know, I went to my classes and everybody was giving me kudos. You know, it, I didn't feel that brave. It wasn't like I was going to get lynched or anything. But yeah, I was proud of the school for printing it, you know, because, you know, I know he saw it. And, you know, so it was weird. Like, I. You know, I encountered intense racism. I encountered intense solidarity. But yeah. my, my focus was on, like, literally just learning everything I could about everything. That's dope. That's so dope. I, I, I look at it as a net positive. Yeah, okay. My experience there. And you ended up graduating there with the same degree, right? With the degree in what, what were your Poly, History of po- political science. Okay, good. And you, uh, where did you go afterwards? So... I ran up against a little bit of a brick wall my senior year. I wanted to mm-hmm. get, uh, I wanted to pursue a PhD in political mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, a professor who I, who I really admired at the time uh, told me don't do that. He said it was kind of a, you know, I guess he saw the looming collapse of liberal arts education. And he mm-hmm. was like, you won't be able to be employed in 10 years. Mm. Um, so I needed to go home and regroup. So after college, I went home and regrouped mm-hmm. um, and, an opportunity fell in my lap that I had to take or, I, you know, that, cause at that point I was thinking about going to law school. Uh, Harry Connick, who had been DA of new Orleans for 30 some odd years. Harry Connick senior. Senior. Yes. 
And with all the problems that came from kind of one person rule mm -hmm. of the criminal justice system, <laughs> he was um, ousted by uh, maybe the first black DA in the city's history or, you know, definitely most recently, Eddie Jordan. And, you know, he wanted to bring on, he had a whole change in administration and he wanted to bring on a couple of uh, college boys, so to speak, in his administration. So I applied. Um, I let the networks do their thing. And mm -hmm. I got lucky enough and I was hired to be a district attorney investigator out of college. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. How was that? How was that experience? Because you being a district attorney, like I, I for, forgot about that, actually. Yeah. So like you being a district attorney in, such, in a city such as New Orleans, how was that experience? And what did you learn from it, really? Well, you learn how, you know, they say the, the fish rots from the head. Mm. And, you know, I went in, you know, I never wanted to be a cop. Like, you know, a lot of, they had a lot of cowboys busting heads and all that stuff. My job was to work with victims and witnesses and help navigate them through the broken criminal justice system. And I took that job real seriously. But you see just, you see just how the system is built to keep its knee on the necks of marginalized people. Um, you know, I watched prosecutors, you know, I don't want to say abuse, but, but definitely overcharge in situations, um, like kind of a lack of compassion. Um, you see kind of how the wasted resources were chasing marijuana cases, the, the, the devoting resources to, you know, kind of menial things. Um, but I also learned a lot of empathy too. You know, you do deal with people who have been victimized and the police had lost so much confidence in, uh, from the people of New Orleans that, you know, they you couldn't get a guilty verdict in, in the New Orleans court system. Mm. So, you know, I'm sitting with women who have been assaulted and they're watching their assaulter go home. I'm sitting with people who have been shot in the neck doing robberies, watching their person that shot them go home. And you learn a lot of empathy and I gained a lot of emotional intelligence and I grew up really quick. Mm. So, you know, it was it was definitely another big formative experience. You know, yeah, I was about to say that I, I guess that kind of opened your eyes up to the complexities of a system. Yeah, you you, you know you you you, well, you see that in, it's not about individuals, right? Like the the people who you'd have a beer or a drink with or go have a steak with, the same people that will triple bill an addict mm -hmm. or a single rock and say it's possession with intent to distribute mm -hmm. and get that individual fifteen years for a single rock that they Gee. were literally going to use on their own. Yeah. So it's not about individuals. It's like when you become part of a system. You inhabit the brutality of that system. You inhabit the corruption of that system. And so it really taught me that, you know, even the best intentioned people can be kind of corrupted and corroded by a broken system. So, you know, I didn't need anybody to tell me how messed up our criminal justice system is. Um, I saw it firsthand from the inside. Damn, man. That's, a, that's incredible. At a very young age. Yeah, I'm going to say that's... <laughs> That's incredible. I was about to say, you're in your early 20s at this moment, you know, coming straight out of college. But that, you know, to me, it also shows a contradiction. Like, I was lucky enough to be on the inside, not the outside, mm -hmm. you know, because you can imagine, you know, going through it on as a as a perpetrator or, you know, like mm -hmm. how messed up that was or yeah. even being a victim. So from my vantage point, though, I could just see how I just chewed up everybody, mm -hmm. um, wasted everybody's time. And you realize that there's a better way to do things, but there was no political will 
or interest to do it. Wow. So from that from that happens up. I mean, you worked there till I'm guessing around 2005. Yeah, August or so. Yeah, August. <laughs> August. Uh, 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 you know, something <laughs> happened around that time. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> about what 15 years ago to the day. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, uh, <laughs> what I have, I, you know what? I never asked you this question. What brought you to us? What brought you to us in Chicago? Like, for, for those who don't know, of course, August 29th, Hurricane Katrina happens and displaced hundreds and thousands of people um, to different places. Some people left for a short period and came back. Some people left to stay away and find, <laughs> uh, you know, just different opportunities elsewhere. Uh, Evlando is one of those people who left and did not exactly move back. Um, you I'm ended up here up- with. Yeah, you you came up here to live with us. Um, <laughs> we were a group of guys that lived in this really nice nice apartment in Chicago. How did that come about? Like, how did how did that happen? Because you know a bunch of people. I love my um, yeah. I love my Katrina story actually. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, quintessential New Orleans. So, mm-hmm. uh, Katrina's coming, whatever. And mm-hmm. my parents, you know, I was I had my own apartment by then. I was living with one of my friends. We had we were living up on uh in in uh. By UNO, actually, where I went to high school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we doing the thing, you know. Absolutely. And uh, my parents leave on like Wednesday, and it hit Sunday. And I was like, whatever. I had a, I had met a friend and she was flying into town with her family and I wanted to hang out with her. So I was, decided to stay back and hang out with her. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, I don't know how, I mean, that's what happened. Being trash. Go on. Yeah. Go on. Shout out to her. Yeah, that's my. It's still my home. Uh, so Saturday night I'm partying. <laughs> As you do, I'm, we used to have hurricane parties. Yeah, but I'm in a quarter. Like stuff shutting down in New Orleans, and that's when I got scared because nothing shuts down. Yeah. So we were in a French quarter. It's like six a.m. Her parents are saying we gotta get out of town. We gotta hop on a plane. So I navigate all this traffic to get back to Metairie to drop her off at her uh, hotel. We're staying with her parents. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, this is real. So. I go to pick up my grandmother at least to go check on her. Mm-hmm. And then they're already in a caravan going to Houston. So I get in the caravan. I got a couple of my little cousins in the car with me. A police issued vehicle, by the way, because I thought we'd be back, you know, in a day or two. <laughs> so I didn't pack up anything. I'm up already 24 hours anyway. Holy shit. So we're in a caravan and then we get lost. So I was like, I had family in Pensacola. So I was like, all right, we'll go to Pensacola. It's three hours away. Yeah. 15 hours later. <laughs> We finally make it. We touch down. And I'm in Pensacola for, for months. And I'm trying to think about what my next move is going to be. I mean, you know, of course, anybody that followed Katrina, know they laid off 80% of the city staff mm-hmm. immediately. It was months before we can even get to our houses, see what was left. Yeah. So I was just, just I was still young. I was thinking about what my next move would be. Um. So I went to Chicago for a birthday party for one of, our, one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. Our good friend and uh, the infamous yes. birthday party. Yeah, that was in September of yes. what six? Yeah, September of September of yeah, two thousand six. Yeah, damn, it wasn't was not that far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I decided to move. Like one of our other friends ended up moving back to New Orleans, mm-hmm. and he let me have his spot. So I moved up, and I ended up in Chicago. Yeah, uh, for the next phase of my life. <laughs> I was to say, and what a phase, man! That was that was so crazy. Uh, the the situation. I remember feeling helpless uh, in New Orleans. Uh, yeah. Feeling helpless watching Hurricane Katrina from 
Chicago and remember at Yo, this I time, just moved, right? Yeah, we had just moved. Yeah. So we were like, what the hell? Like, like Katrina was in August. We left late July. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so it was just, we just got back. We just got here. Everybody you know still down there. Yeah, everybody I know still down there. We're worried about our family, worried about our friends. We're worried about our friends' families because I think the universe ha- is, is amazing, man. I honestly, you know, living there with Ayo, Cody, Ramon, um, I couldn't have gone through that with anybody else. Yeah. From afar. Yeah, that makes total I think, sense. I think with those guys, they really helped me process Hurricane Katrina. So it may not have, and it hit hard. Yeah. But I think it wasn't as hopeless because I had those guys to lean on at the time. You know, and I feel like that was, yeah. um, I, I, I honestly, even thinking back on it, I thank everything um, for those guys living there for those two years. It had to happen that way. Like, yeah. It, 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 I mean, they had family still down there. Like, everybody. Yeah. It was like collective grieving. We were all, we were all in it together. Yeah. Everybody checked on everybody. Yeah. And I felt like that was so important during that time. And I needed that being so far away for the first time, you know? Uh, so you, you go out to Chicago, and obviously I know about Chicago, your Chicago experience, but let's talk about some of the things. What What would you say is your best moment in Chicago? And also, what is your worst moment in Chicago? Oh, good question. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it's the same. I'm gonna the same event is the best and worst moment. Really? Because it it really helped my political awakening in a lot of ways. Okay. It's when I got when the Great Recession hit. I was working at a hotel, mm-hmm. and we were talking about unionizing before the Great Recession hit. And I don't know what contributed, but they fired our entire team mm. at the same time and brought in contract workers. So, you know, we had, you know, it wasn't like a great job, but like, you know, we had healthcare benefits mm-hmm. um, and decent salary, decent overtime. Yeah. And they brought on, and when that happened, it put me back at square one within a few years of having just gone through Katrina. Mm. And I realized that these structural things happen and there's really no safety net. You know, I was able to get unemployment and, you know, I kind of started a website and I learned about web design and I started, you know, I had a portfolio from college that, you know, cause I wanted to be a communications writer person, but I didn't have any of those. I didn't have, you know, this was zip disks and like printouts, mm-hmm. you know, and also I was in my parents' garage and it was unusable. Like, so I had nothing to even say that I was a good writer, you know? So mm-hmm. I used a website to build up a portfolio, um, and, it, and and when I ended up moving to DC, the webs I actually put the website on my resume, mm-hmm. and that's what actually got me my first job uh, in DC. Interesting. Why did you choose DC from Chicago? Uh, I mean, because I was having a hard time finding work in Chicago, and you know, a lot of people were moving. Um, my friend Cody, I think he was engaged on his way to being engaged. Yeah. So he he ended up leaving. Yeah. Line eventually. Yeah. So um, I needed a change, and I got, and I had just, I mean, you know, my one of my best friends, Brent Rudy, my one another one of the best friends. I had, mm-hmm. I had people, I had a, a little kind of plug out in D.C. Yeah. So I at least know I had somewhere to stay while I got my head on straight. And I was at the age where I was still like, kind of like, I can live anywhere. So yeah. Um, and they, and they were telling me, you know, come to D.C. get a job. So I, you know, within the first few months of being there, um, 
I got my first job. It was my first writing job as an adult. Because, mm-hmm. you know, back in Chicago, I was working as a security guard at a hotel. Yeah. And this job was writing campaign literature during the 2008, 2009 political cycle. Wow. So that was my first writing job. I was a content writer yeah. writing political <laughs> direct mail. The that's, kind of stuff you throw away when you get it in your that's mailbox. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Can you describe, like, the vibe of D.C. when you got out there? Like, how was it? Um, I know, that especially DC is known for their political stronghold, right? How was that? How was it being a part of that whole, that whole circle? I went the other way. Mm. I I fell in, you know, because they're they're definitely like the political people, um, but they're you know, and those are people who kind of give DC a bad rap. Mm. I fell in with the the shift workers, the bartenders, the the artists, um, like that's who I that's who I kicked it with, um, and I got and I got lucky because I found I fell into a really great group of friends. Um, I had my high school friends definitely, and they held me down, but they already had their lives built there. But I was able to kind of like build up, you know, my own life um, with people who are still my friends to this very day. Um, and I had a great time in D.C. I mean. I, I had a great time. I didn't do the political thing too much. We go out there sometimes and make mm-hmm. fun of them. Mm-hmm. Um, or when they come into the bars where they're not supposed to be, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. we'd spot them out. But I fell in with a, I, I, between my friends and like the kind of circles I ran in and the kind of places I frequented. Um, I had a really, I had a really good time. Now you, you are infamously known for getting to, getting into some shit. <laughs> out in D.C. <laughs> And I was thoroughly impressed when I heard about this. I was like, "What the fuck?" Um, and you ended up getting a write up in Washington Post. Am I correct? Yeah. Word. Can't explain to us what happened. So it's another one of those structural things. So mm-hmm. um, I was working in DC. I was working for an educational technology firm doing communications. Mm-hmm. They grew too big. They laid off like forty percent of their staff. So I was without a job again. So like on my resume, it looks crazy. Um, and so that sent me into a, um, before, before that happened, I was, you know, just trying to find my space, find my place. I ended up getting a job with a small kind of investigative blog, um, like a two man operation with some guidance from, a, a a larger guru. And it's funny because I did the interview for that and I'm telling this this guy about all this community because I'm proud of my writing stuff. I always fancy myself a writer, mm-hmm. communicator. And I'm telling about this writing stuff and all these communications I've written. And he's like, all right, all right. He's saying, so the interview is kind of over and he's not impressed. And he says, well, tell me, you know, just tell me a little bit about yourself. And I was like, oh, um, like something you left off your resume. I was like, oh, I used to be a criminal investigator in New Orleans. <laughs> His eyes lit up. Yes. Tell me more about that. And so I tell him, you know, so, you know, you tell us like the kind of crazy stories. And he hired me. And uh, one of the first things I had to do was learn how to do a, um, they call it like a no knock interview or a pull up interview. Yeah. And this individual who we were looking at, uh, he runs a man, minority front group for fossil fuel industry. So basically he parrots corporate talking points um, and pretends that he has like broad based black community support for him. Mm. Um, he was even talk, telling people like asthma doesn't, you know, he, just the whole gamut of like lies, telling bad people that clean energy is bad for them, 
uh, asthma doesn't affect us. Smog doesn't affect us. Word. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I put, so it's funny. It reminds me of this podcast. I pulled up on him in Miami for a conference. Yeah. And that, that tape didn't come out that well. So he couldn't really use it. And this, I mean, he, and that tape, he was calling me an asshole and like, yeah, trying to brace up on me. And I had to like, keep my cool. And then two days later, he was going to be in Columbus. They're like, Avondo, we'll fly you from Miami to Columbus. If you can just, let's try again. Let's get it this time. Mm-hmm. So we pulled up in Columbus. Um, we got the video of me asking him about, he told me how much he did for people in Katrina and he getting pissed at me and I'm maintaining my cool because I didn't want photo man up anyway. Yeah. yeah, that's not my nature. Yeah, and uh, we get we get it. We get the video. We pitch it to the Washington Post. Uh, they do it as part of a larger story. It was on a front page of the Post in a corner, you know. Yeah, you know, beneath the fold, but it was there. It was there, and um, you know, we think it was a big hit to they do, you know, because that kind of stuff actually personally disgusts me. You know, like you can't claim to represent a group of people, forty million people, and then like actually make money saying that the things that are hurting them the most are the things that don't hurt them. Mm. So I'm really proud of that. Like not so much about the Washington Post thing, but because, you know, it was kind of a marriage of all the skills that I had gathered at that point. It was my investigative stuff at the DA's office, my writing, Mm. my patience from years of being a church boy. Yes. (laughs) And also your petty for calling him out on that bullshit in front of everybody. Oh man, when he, when he said, uh, "I help, I, I do a lot for New Orleans." Thank you for that, sir. But we're asking about this. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> block and pivot. Block and pivot. I love it. I love it. Oh man, that's genius. <laughs> so you ended up making like quite the life out there in DC. How long? How long were you there total? Uh, about nine years. Nine uh, years. When I moved here, time is so fungible. Man. Time, time is crazy. Um, I moved to DC in '09, and I moved out of here. Mm, Two thousand nineteen. Yeah, last year. Yeah, last yeah, year. So out in DC, I guess those are very formidable years. Like those are like. I mean, I, years, my daughter. I mean, so I, you know, I spent the first half of that. I know. I'm no. Let me tell a real story. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, DC was good to me, but you know, it, I had ups and downs. Like I said, I, I had that first job kind of out the gate, mm-hmm. and then I was looking. You know, the company ended up going out of business mm-hmm. after the after that '09 election cycle. Yeah. So I was looking for work. I found work, um, at a like at a um at a nonprofit. Um, I was laid off from that, mm. and that was like eighteen months. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. It was bad. Um, but you know, I had you know, I had friends that looked out for me. And in the in the midst of all this, I'm having a great time. I'm having fun. Yeah. Probably too much fun. Yeah. But you know, it is like anxiety. There was a lot of anxiety and struggle. And mm. um, you know, I'll tell you a story. I I tell, you know, normally I don't tell this publicly, but okay. I, it just, you know, it just helps people understand. I had a pretty good, you know, upbringing. I went to I went to college. And then, you know, I find myself after the, after the second time I lost my job, I go to the food stamp office mm-hmm. at 6 a.m. There's a line around the corner. They say, if you want to actually see somebody today, you need to come at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. I go the next day, I'm at 5 a.m. I'm getting unemployment. 
But I learned that if you want food stamps, they subtract all income, regardless of the source. They don't take into account like your rent or anything else. Mm. And so the woman looked at me sadly and said, sir, you made the maximum unemployment. So we're only able to offer you $16 a month in food stamps. Holy shit. What, are you gonna, what can you do with that? So I find myself at food pantries. Mm. I ended up losing my apartment. Uh, I ended up couch surfing for a couple of months. Yeah. Um, and then I finally got like, you know, I, I, I got this job. at the, That's when I got the job at the educational technology company. Mm. And uh, I was able to get back on my feet. Um, I met my now wife during yeah. that time at a Halloween party. Now, I was going to ask, how did that happen? It was, you know, it was, it was, it was happenstance. It was a Halloween party that I didn't want to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't want to go to. And our friends, not on purpose. Like we had two separate groups of friends, but yeah. we had this one friend in common who was hosting a party. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I'll go, you know, and, you know, I was pretty tired, but I went yeah. and um, we ended up, you know, we, you know, our friends kind of just left. <laughs> we ended yeah. up being there all night sitting on the steps talking. Um, and I walked her home and I went home and I was really excited about meeting her that's awesome man yeah it's awesome um, i love those happenstance meetings it was i mean it's it, great like one you know if i just say no to that you know my life your life is totally different yeah. i feel you i'm the same way it's like, so crazy yeah life is it. life is crazy life is filled with like split second decisions that can control everything yeah you know so um yeah that that's really awesome it's really awesome so how did you end up coming up out of the ranks of couch surfing to living a more stable life out there just patience and my patience and patience of my friends i mean you know i put in hundreds of applications mm. um and then my friends helped me get a linkedin profile which you know yeah it's kind of how i ended up getting the, the job that kind of helped me get back on my feet um because nice. i'm on you know I'm, i was still on craigslist and all the little job boards and you know i like I just, and that's the thing, like, I didn't know precarity as a child in the same way, but I knew it as an adult. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when I realized just how thin the line is between the haves and the have-nots. Or people, when I say have, even people that think they have, they don't even realize how, how close they are to the line. Yeah. So it just gave me a whole new perspective um, and just a kind of an awareness of, I mean, I was always a sympathetic person, but like, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about, these major kind of acts of God in my life. Yeah. And why one act of God sends me into a spiral where I'm trying to climb out of months and years at a time. Indeed. Um, but yeah, so it just persistence. I finally got an interview um, and it was a good fit. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a pretty hard worker. I like to think, and you know, once I'm passionate about something, I'm able to kind of come up with new ideas. So I did good in the role. Mm-hmm. I deserved it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but it just, it was a hard, it was a hard road to climb. That's just, man, I, I know that. I know that <laughs> you story. know, you know what I'm talking about. I'm going to say, I know man. that story oh too well, man. Yeah. You got to, you got to just build up. It takes a lot of patience and a lot of faith in yourself. And, uh, and you know, it's and a good, and a good support system. And you know, I, you know I, it's just funny we talking about it now because, you know, there are points in my life where I can imagine talking about this publicly. Mm-hmm. Just the deep sense of shame yeah. that I would have felt just, you know, but I mean, I think people need, like, I think all of us are going through, mm-hmm. whether we think we're good now, like, we need to know that we're all kind of close to the edge. Yeah. And 
let's point out, you know, we'll talk about this later, but like why collective action is needed to make sure that none of us mm-hmm. have to experience that kind of precarity um, at another person's whim. Mm. I, I completely agree. I am a, um, I'm a full believer that we go through things not only to make us stronger and better at surviving, but also to inspire others. Yes. You know, so I am, I've had very low moments at one point that I'm very, I used to be ashamed of talking about, but it's like, no, that person needs to hear this story. Yeah. That person needs to understand this so they know that, hey, they're not alone because I am a person who's, I've been through shit and have felt so alone while yeah. going through it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I'm the big, biggest fuck up ever because how did I go from this to yes. this? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and like you realize, oh, yeah, sometimes you got to take a step back to move forward. Yes. You know, and I, I feel like that's so important to share that story. We go through things so we can tell the stories and inspire others and, and actually help ourselves. I think that that helps out as well, man. That's why that's one of the reasons why I do Chris Talks, you know what I'm saying, is to do these stories and, and hopefully the listener is able to hear us and, and be inspired by it, you know. Um I, it's funny that you said that when you mentioned, you know, so others aren't accepted, so others don't have to feel that pain or whatnot, which leads me into your political leanings. Um, I know that, you know, you've worked a lot with, with politics in general. Uh, you are very passionate about it. Uh, you started working with the Democratic Socialists. Uh, can you explain Democratic Socialism? Um, what are, how are the ideals, how do the ideals fit for America today? Uh, democratic socialism at its best is you shouldn't have to struggle to pay for to live basically mm. um so you know you shouldn't have to you know <laughs> you shouldn't have to worry about like your rent going up to being 50 percent of your paycheck and how you're going to yeah. live you know it's a you know I can get into the theory and all that, but just to make it plain spoken, Mm -hmm. the way we're living now is not the way we should be living. Mm. Um, Everybody should be guaranteed a basic humane existence where you're not, you know, where you're not worried about if you get sick, can you pay your healthcare bills? You're not worried about if you can't, if you lose your job, can you keep your apartment? You're going to be homeless, but there is no homeless people. Mm. There's enough housing for everybody in this country. So why do we have homeless people? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just recognizing that our system is not a human is not a humane system. Our system is designed to make sure that all of the resources, or at least the vast majority of them, accrue to a very, 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 very small group of people. And once again, I don't know these people. I don't know if they're good or bad people, but they participate in a system that is designed to milk everything out of us and leave us with very little and leave them with very much. Do you think the current state of affairs, and I'm talking about with the recent situations of people protesting and also, you know, the, of course the murder, uh, the murders of, of all the black people and COVID things like that. It, I feel like it creates a sense of, um, there's a sense of disparity amongst the, amongst the average American right now. Do you think that that's going to spark the change to see some of these changes to to move forward with the process of that lifestyle, really? I think it can. I think the one thing that's missing from all of it is which kind of termed class consciousness. Mm-hmm. And it really is just realizing we're all in the same boat. 
the system is brutal and it manifests itself in disparate ways because they're the brutality is disparately proportioned. So it manifests itself in, I like to say it manifests itself in um, police abuse for black people, people of color. But then, you know, all the fentanyl overdoses, the, the diseases of despair, the increased suicide rates. Um, so, you know, we have to deal with it systemically. I, we, we have to, I like the fact that people are addressing the criminal justice aspect of it, mm-hmm. but that's not going to fundamentally change unless we address the root problems of why we have police in the first place, mm-hmm. who they're policing and why they're policing them and who are they really protecting and serving. There was a situation of course, um, with Chaz, which is a uh, Capitol Hill, uh, uh, atomic, uh, uh, autonomous, uh, zone. autonomous zone, autonomous zone. Um, and they, you know, people are calling that the kind of like blueprint for how they want the city to be. Uh, what are your thoughts on pretty much the neighborhood police in itself? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated just because I think people have a lot of good ideas, but then there, there needs to be a practice for how to actually implement them. And I think, you know, I don't know, I think a lot of, I think we'd be better served if we did a little more of the kind of um, the understanding of how to implement these things because mm-hmm. they're not going to run off good intentions. So while I, I, I appreciate the idea of like what kind of community policing looks like, um, we need to actually talk about what that looks like. And, and you know, it can't just be a spontaneous you know, we're, we're humans with all our different experiences and, and understanding. So the idea that we're going to just spontaneously organize in a way that's perfect, that's, that's not going to work. We got to hash this out. I agree. I think we need rules and parameters. Yeah. Um, yes, they can, be, they can be radical. They can be, you know, of a certain level of idealism, right? But I feel like there still needs to be some sort of like, okay, these are the rules. These are the boundaries that we have for this neighborhood. Because if we could just leave it to everybody, we everybody has to, everybody it allows everybody to design design their own level of mortality, morality, <laughs> and what's good for me may not be good for you, right? You know what I'm saying? And and that's the thing I don't I don't trust that too often. Also, I kind of feel like it ran away. Like this started off as a Black Lives Matter, sure, yeah, um, yeah, thing, and I feel like it ran away from its, you know, from its original goal. Yes. Um, I can see why policing, you know, uh, abolishing police as we know it is a good thing for all people. But I, I need I just need some sort of order. Well, this is this is this is something that I, you know, maybe it just comes with age or whatever. Mm-hmm. But. We're not going to get anywhere like no small segment, no segmented part of the population is going to get anything done of substance. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if if everybody backs a kind of like the kind of Black Lives Matter plan for improving criminal justice, that's fine. But you can't take that and then, you know, subject it to all these various different goals and aims mm-hmm. um, that may or may not be connected. My my thing is, I think we definitely have to attack the root of it, which I think is material. It's economic redistribution. Um, 
to everybody, but particularly to benefit um, socially marginalized communities like black people. I think we start dealing there, then we can, then we'll be able to kind of address, but you know, some people, a lot of people won't agree with that. That's fine. But segmenting ourselves into various different like slices of the population and trying to get these things done, I think um, is a recipe for disaster as we're seeing. So like, instead of backing, if you, if you do back black lives matter then back them hundred percent until their aims are achieved, but it's way too early to start peeling off into your own little separate niches of things that you want done. Yeah. So it's divided whatever in it. What I was, we were talking, it was a, it was to me, it felt like revolutionary energy. Mm-hmm. It was definitely revolutionary energy, but it was already too disparately directed to like actually kind of achieve what the main aim of it started out as. And that happened pretty quickly. Given what's going on today in the news cycles and and off the news cycles, as a matter of fact, where do you see the U.S. headed? <sighs> um, well, I, I see the iceberg and horizon for my wheelhouse. It's climate change. Mm. Um. You know, I was, you know, I've been reading, you know, Marx thought that capitalism was, you know, just another system with contradictions that would eventually work itself out and lead to something else. I don't think he accounted for the idea that literally <laughs> capitalism has a death drive that would kill off humanity before we actually got to the next phase, mm. which is communism or socialism. So, you know, if we don't address climate change, everything else is is moot. And I know people don't like to hear that, but I mean, you know. Because it's not sexy. Physics is <laughs> physics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you keep cranking up the heat on this planet, um, eventually it becomes unlivable. And whether that happens in 25 or 100 years, um, mm-hmm. we only have a short, a short amount of time to fix it. And, I, and that's the other thing. I, I think socialism, collective um energy towards achieving one goal is the only way to actually save humanity from the worst of climate change because capitalism is too incentivized Mm -hmm. to actually come up with a solution that works best for everybody. You got to remove the profit motive from it. Otherwise it's not going to happen. What moves are you making today and what moves can you recommend for others to make in order to kind of like move the needle forward? To make it a better place i think find what you're good at you know i'm um you know in my working group um we just wrote out this idea of like subcommittees you know so i you know i i did a little bit of organizing in my day i you know i i, I um organized for ralph nader in 2000 I was say, you you did every fucking thing <laughs> but it's not my wheelhouse yeah i'm not good at it i'm not you know i'm not good at that kind of strategy i am good at other things you know some people are good at outreach some good at people are good at communications and messaging find what you're good at and do that and and make yourself available to other people you know it's okay if you know you may not you may not be the person to plan you know to chain yourself to the nuclear power plant Mm -hmm. but help disseminate the message or help recruit people or help you know explain why that's happening so my advice would be find your niche Wait, study, learn, research, mm-hmm. acquire, be curious, and then find what you're good at and contribute that to whatever movement you're fighting for. Excellent, excellent. I have a question, and this is sort of like, I guess a controversial one. 
Oh, in the sense, um, we all are. You know, last time I checked, you and I are African American. I, I am. Yep, we are black. You know, still get looked at by the police. Um, <laughs> there's the, there's of course there's the movement of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, black Lives Matter, I think is, is great. I feel like it's simplistic, in the way of like, hey, we matter, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, I do think that it's a part of a. I feel like the the group is a part of a system. That may not be perfect. Yeah. What would you say can improve about it? And what is the issue that you see? Because because some some about it doesn't click to me. And maybe you know. And maybe you could, you could put words to it. I'm not exactly there. But something about it is like, all right, cool. We know that I'm at. Right? Right. You know, I, I know. Like, I, I love black people. I'm blackity black black. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like... What do you feel is has been the issue with Black Lives Matter, especially during this moment in these this movement? Well, that's the thing. I don't. I think Black Lives Matter has achieved a level of public consciousness that is incredible, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's an incredible feat of branding, absolutely, and organization. I think now, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to profess to be an expert, but I think now is the time. Not everybody knows that Black Lives Matter, that we start pushing for universal programs that would disproportionately benefit black people. Mm. I saw this thing in Kentucky where the governor said that um, he was going to pass a Medicaid for all, he's going to push for a Medicaid for all plan for black people. That sounds good on the surface, but the problem is when something's like racially divided like that, Mm -hmm. it's not going to survive. No, no. If something, if universal programs are the best way to ensure that they can't be rolled back or defeated in the long run. Because the first thing they go for when shit hits the fan is we got to do some cutbacks. Exactly. And black people lose. If everybody's benefiting from it, then it's a lot like you you can't repeal Social Security. Mm-hmm. They try to find little ways to do it because everybody benefits from it. Yeah. It's to the point where people don't even know it's a government program. They say, keep your government hands off my social security. <laughs> like the Tea Party. I know, which is so funny. It's and that it's... ingrained in American conscience. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I think Black Lives Matter has has reached saturation. And I think now is the time. I think police reform is good. I think they're in danger of being, um, their reforms are being watered down by powers that be. Mm-hmm. But I think if they wanted to make a pivot, then I think pivoting towards a universal program where you take the good faith and goodwill of all the people who say black lives matter and channel that back into programs that Mm. benefit everybody, but especially black people. Yeah, I agree. I think that we're seeing a lot of new, new legislation come across the desk. And I think part of that is because America is seeing white people get their ass whipped by cops. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it all our lives. But the fact that they're showing that uh, you have the case where the nine-year-old girl was pepper sprayed in Seattle and just um, the 75-year-old gentleman. Was, Reporters losing their eye. The, yeah. The, the Buffalo guy that got yeah. pushed down and hit the back of his head. And, like, you know, I know it's verboten to say, but, you know, police kill poor white people, too. Yeah, they do. And a lot of times it's, you know, suspicious unwarranted the issue is is white supremacy the issue is the the abuse of power 
Yes. It's white supremacy. It's the abuse of power, which is ingrained in white supremacy. White supremacy is a manifest, to my mind. Mm -hmm. White supremacy is a justification Mm. for behavior that benefits the ruling elite. Because it keeps us in competition with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not at black, not not at white people are saying black lives matter. Now is the time to say, okay, let's channel this energy into something that actually poses a threat and benefits all of us. Mm. Because like I said, the, the the gains that are made along racial lines are too easily retracted by somebody like a Trump or a better Trump. And when I say better, I mean more effective because let's not pretend that, you know, Trump has been successful. No. He's he's a, he's a maniac. But he's a maniac, his, but he's an idiot. Because he says everything that comes to his brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. we're able to like see what he's actually thinking and counter it. But like don't act don't pretend like there's not a better demagogue that can come along. I mean, we've already in my mind, I feel like we've already had it with someone like Reagan. Yeah. Reagan was Reagan was, I felt like black Hitler. Like Hitler for black people. Reagan single mentally you know? dismantled 40 years of progress. Yes. And we're where we are now. A lot of it's attributable to Reagan. To so, economics. And Reagan was yeah. effective. He Very much so. More in America. Now, you know, not like death and doom and destruction. Like Trump talks about more in America. Meanwhile, he's making people's lives hell mm-hmm. across the country. So, I, you know, I think now is the time to build, to build on this energy and, and, and channel it into something that can bring all of us together. To, to really go after the powers that be. And that's my hope. God damn, you're good at this politics shit. <laughs> I'm all right. Yeah, man, we going we to switch it up, man. I appreciate Thank you for your great insight on that because I, I really, I don't know, that's not discussed often enough. You know, and I feel like it's important for us to to face these demons, to face these complicated situations in order for us to move forward. I, I like to think, I mean, I think about this stuff a lot. I know, you know, People are very careful about how they say things. and But, you know, I've had the police put a gun to my head. I've been beat up by the cops. Um, I know what that feels like. I'm, Sadly enough, that's a common story amongst black men. Yeah. But, We've all been assaulted. But I don't want to, I don't, like, my individual experience isn't the sum total of all human experience. And so, you know, I want to make sure that I'm contextualizing what happened to me within a larger system of how that brutalizes black people generally, but also how it works on behalf of a brutal and oppressive. They're just the foot soldiers for the brutal and oppressive. Yeah. The whole system is there. They're not breaking the law. Yeah. They're enforcing it. They're Yeah. They're enforcing (laughs) it and following orders. Yeah. And this is the problem that I have. Yes. All right. Moving forward, man. This has been, this has been good, man. I'm loving this right now. Um, you're such a diverse guy. Like, you know, you have all these things from politics. Um, you're a trap in th- trap music enthusiast. Enthu- yes. <laughs> There's a lot of like ignorant music bumping out of your room back in the day. And um, I was first like, one on Waka Flocka back in oh, Nicki oh, Minaj shit. when she was running with Gucci yeah, and Deborah. This is, and- there's nothing to really brag about, sir. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was on it. But one of the things, one of the ways we bonded well was actually through horror. Yes. Horror films. Um, I'll never forget. And, and I guess this isn't really horror, but like, I remember when we saw um, Grindhouse together. Yes. You and I. 
And that was actually one of the most fun experiences I've ever had in the movies. That was top five the, movie experience. Man. The whole thing with the trailers. They, they Everything. Did it. it was awesome. I love the yeah. fact that the movie theater was like walking distance. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That shit was great. Everything was cool. I loved it, man. Um, let's get into some of your favorite horror films. What are some of your favorite horror films and why? Um, All right. Well, I got to start with the OG. Okay. Exorcist. Exorcist. Yes. Shit, that movie. Whoo. Um, I remember when I was, I was about 12 years old and my aunt who I love, uh, RIP, I love my aunt, she was an avid reader. And so I saw it on her shelf and the book. Yeah. And I was like, can I read that? And she was like, I don't know if your dad going to let you. <laughs> so of course he saw me reading it and well, he saw me, it's all like, he saw me getting ready to grab it and he said, no, you can't. Uh-uh. So I was snuck up late one night on Cinemax and I watched a movie. And scared the hell out of me to this very day. Yes. Um, and clearly it's like, it's just a, it, beyond being a great horror movie, it's a great movie. It is. Um, but man, did it fuck me up. Yeah. It and was, it dealt with ooh. faith and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So let's, let's get that one out the way. Yeah. Um, I like to go by era, I guess. So, okay. You know, so 70s, it was definitely Exorcist. Um, 80s was, I was kind of a kid, so I was watching a lot of trash, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you got Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely That's a classic. You have some of the Clive Barker joints, Lord of Illusions, mm-hmm. and the Mouth of Madness. Um, let me think of a hidden gem, though. It's hard. It's, I've seen literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and I, I think you rival me and people who've seen entirely too many horror films. <laughs> I'm gonna start convinced. I'm gonna start with most recent. Yeah, and then when we have the horror movie podcast, I have yes, you have all that. Shout out to Mark, man. Shout yeah. out to Mark. We will do this. We will do this. But my two most recent favorites are um, I can't call his name, but he did Hereditary and um, oh the A24 people Midsummer. Yes, that Midsummer um, was yeah. Woo. Uh, Midsummer didn't scare me as much as Hereditary, but it sat with me longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Midsummer comes off like, I like explaining Midsummer like it's a rom com. Like, it's just, oh, yeah, she had a breakup and she goes to find a new family somewhere else where she's, she's accepted. That's what the movie's about. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she finds, she finds her own. <laughs> that, that's what it is. <laughs> I saw one that was super relevant Blood Quantum on Shudder. I don't know if you have a Shudder. I do have Shudder. Have you seen Blood Quantum? <gasps> No. Oh, you'll love Check it. Check it out. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I've been trying to find like, all right. So I bought Shutter, and I'm I'm not gonna lie to you. At first, I was like, I'm not impressed. You wasn't at first, at first. But then what I started discovering was like Channel Zero. Yeah, so Channel Zero. Channel fire. Zero. Um. Also, there's the comic book documentary. Have you oh, seen the no, comic book documentary? No, I need to check it out. My dude. I don't even know why this is on Shutter because it's not really horror. Right. But it takes such a deep and awesome look and detailed look into the history of comics. So each episode is based on like an aspect of comics. They The first episode, they get Marvel out the way real quick. <laughs> right. And I'm like, yeah. well, if it isn't Marvel, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Then there's a whole episode on Wonder Woman, which is fucking amazing. Like, <laughs> I had no idea Wonder Woman story was that dope okay and i i have a whole new respect for wonder woman now like the whole comic i have a whole new respect for the creators everything in it i have a whole new respect for it they did superman they did one on black people in comics oh interesting and that is dope i thought that was amazing and then they did they did one for people who who ventured outside of the dc and marvel realm 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, image yeah, everything. Yeah. Like so, they that was amazing as well. I I highly recommend it. I'll send you that. Um, please be 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 sure to send me your horror recommendations for Shutter because I, I will. I'm a huge Shutter fan. Like now I am, but at first I was like, uh. But I, I'm just starting to get into it. I got into Creep Show. Yeah, Creep Show was good. Creep Show was cool. I mean, you know, I've been re- and I've been watching a lot of stuff that I couldn't find. Like they have um, like Dario Argento movies. Mm. Who are, you know stuff that I don't know how good it is, but like it's classic stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we could talk about like I gotta like, I gotta actually sit and think about. I mean, because yeah. I just watched a horror movie yesterday, Becky, which not quite horror, but <laughs> yeah, it's called I mean, Becky. Back, I mean, in this day and age. <laughs> Becky's the scariest shit. Thanks, Karen. It's about a teenage, it's about a teenage girl that turns a table. It's like Home Alone, but like, oh, okay, violent. Okay, ultra violent. I'm, I'm, I'm down for the, the hard candy vibe. I'm, Kevin I'm James plays a neo Nazi. Really? Yeah. So, all right, the vibe, that's the vibes. That's, that's that's wild. Nice, Kevin James. Don't nice. shut the small stuff. Got King the, of Queens. Got Kevin the James. tattoo and everything. Shit. Yeah. You might have me sold. I'm in for this. I'm in for this. That that's dope. That's dope. Um, what do you think of the as far as like what is your favorite kind of horror film? Because you got slashes, you have ghosts, vampires, werewolves, things like that. Um, when I th- now that I think about it, I think it's psychological horror. But that's mm. where I'm at at this point in my life. I mean, when I was a kid, when I was younger, I would seek out the gore. Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that you know. That's you know it gets played out. It does, but when it's done well, it's you know the practical effects, you mm-hmm. know, like Day of the Day of the Dead, all of, all the George Romero movies. Yes, you know, there's stuff in the '80s, but now like I'm, I like the the psychological horror movies. I watched another one uh, called The Lodge. Okay, that, um, you know, so I like the ones that kind of like what what was so brilliant about Hereditary was like you could have taken a supernatural stuff out of it it would have been a great drama yeah you didn't need the supernatural stuff yeah yeah I, I agree and you know so yeah that's why i'm leaning at I, like that that makes you really think and it kind of like contextualizes why you're being haunted by this thing or feeling this thing for me i think that was the reason why um midsummer was so creepy yeah midsummer seemed really realistic have you seen the extended version uh no oh there's like a there's like a three-hour cut holy shit yeah. Do I need to see this? Yes, because okay. you're <laughs> watching it and you don't even remember what parts were left out of the thing. Yeah. But it just adds a whole new complexity to certain certain uh, characters. I'm more than sure that I Oh. New horror new favorite horror movie. Yeah. Doctor Sleep. What am I tri- I'm tripping? Oh shit. The extended Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep. Shit. Yes. The extended Doctor Sleep. I, I watched the extended Doctor Sleep. Um, I might have scarred my, my family. But yo, <laughs> shit is dope. Psychological I, horror. Yep. Great, um, great black girl magic. Yes, by the way, if you're a black girl magic fan, oh man, literally, mad, literally, literally black girl magic. (laughs) Um, I thought it was a great follow up to a great film. Yeah, I love, I love The Shining. I thought that the actors did a great job, especially the actors who had to take over for people who were no longer here. Yeah, like um, the guy who did uh, we did like we did a review on it for my podcast. Should this be a movie? And mm-hmm. I thought that the guy who, um, the black dude, old yeah. black dude, he did a great job um, yeah. kind of doing the old dude's part. I thought then, that was awesome. You know, the, the the brilliance of that film was like, it's also like a memory. So like the memory is also going to be a little different than how it actually was. So yeah. having them be different characters 
actually kind of comports with like a child remembering what happened to him. And I thought that, you know, people know that Stephen King hated the Kubrick Shining. I thought he did a brilliant job of marrying the book to like the Kubrick version and some parts of the Stephen King novel. That's yeah. my favorite horror film of the last. Well, Hereditary, Doctor Sleep. Two I think Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep took it for me. I thought that was like just, just it's fantastic. Like I will go back and watch that. It was great. Don't get me wrong; it's got child murder in it, but like <laughs> not as much as the book. Not as the book. Not as much as the book. But shit, Captain, it's there. Oh Definitely man, there. loved it. Castle Absolutely Rock is good too. Oh man, Castle Rock. This TV show. Yes. Yes. Solid. Solid. It's a great homage. I feel like it's like, hey, let's play Stephen King's greatest hits. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know what let me down? I what? know you want to move, but I, no, I, I had the whole bird Into the Dark. I don't know if you've been watching those. Man. All right. So Into the Dark. I watch them every month like they're going to be great. Yeah. Into the Dark. Like I saw the Mother's Day one. It wasn't terrible. Yeah, the Thanksgiving yeah. one was like, yeah. what was it with the Pilgrims or something? The Pilgrims. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, it's okay. It, it's all right. Yeah. It's That's the thing. Into the Dark always seems like it's supposed to be better. I like the concept of Into the Dark. Brilliant. Yeah. So for those who are listening, Into the Dark is a uh, like a horror movie anthology. And every month they do a different horror film based on the holiday on that month. And I feel like they miss the mark every time. <laughs> like every time. Like I was like, man. What was the I, immigration I, one? That one was fire. There was an immigration one? Yeah. Holy shit. I remember what I can't remember what holiday. It might have been Labor Day. Yeah. It had yeah. a bit of a Stepford Wives feel. Yeah. But it dealt with that one was fire. Okay. But that was the last fire one, if I really think about it. But yeah. I'm just like, I don't know, man. This is Yeah, but they're never as good as they're supposed to be. They are not. They are not. It's unfortunate. Uh, we're gonna. <laughs> it's awesome. Then this is why I love watching movies with you, man. This is why I need to watch <laughs> more horror films with you. I can't wait till the the world opens back up. Yeah, because I got horror films. Because what I'm looking forward to is Candyman. Oh yeah, yes. I forgot they're remaking. That. Yeah, so the, the I got mixed feelings on that. But here's the thing: I like the fact that they're calling it a spiritual sequel because I can see it. Yeah, I can definitely see it as a person who saw the movie and the person who loves horror movies in general. I'm cool with spiritual sequels. Yeah, you yeah, know? that's dope. Yeah, that's yeah. a dope way to put it. Yeah, so I think that'll be good. Um, all right, so we're gonna move forward, man. We're gonna move forward to um, a little bit of music. M- music. Um, what are you listening to now? What's <laughs> in your rotation now? All Griselda. <laughs> oh shit! Um, boom! 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 <laughs> Griselda is like how I pictured like the music of my youth. Yes. As a grown up. Yes. Like I don't know how they just <laughs> recaptured that. Because I listen to old I listen to Wu Tang. Yeah. I still get that feel, but like you I, it was it's a different time. Yeah. Yeah. It this, feels like my childhood. This is Raekwon and Ghostface shoot 'em up music for now. Yeah. And yeah. it's great. It's and brilliant. I'm, I'm gonna tell you this, man. I'm gonna tell you this. This is an unpopular opinion, because I listen to Griselda too. Um West Side Gun is not that great. He's not that great of a rapper. No, it's all charisma, right? It's all charisma. Yeah. It's all charisma. And he can pick a beat like no one else's business. He got a ghost face ear. Oh, shit. He yes. got a ghost face ear he for music. He got a ghost face ear for music. Like, yeah. But I don't know. He's not the greatest rapper, but he is all like Fly God. You know, just it's all swag. I, all I, I say swag. charisma, but because swag feels. Yeah, it's definitely it's charisma it's, and swag. Yeah. Charisma and sweat. That is that is his strong point. And and music, like, yeah. but he marries his 
he makes the most out of what he has. Yeah, he does. Like I don't he know does. how he rides the beat. Um, future, look, and then look. That's my that's my Griselda, but like that's not gonna act like I. You know, I've been getting into some real yeah ugly guy. I mean, like I like the little young boys. The yeah. real the I've been finding the worst young boy rapper. Yeah, you have. You have. And <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty consistent and on brand. Yeah. Every generation. Yeah, who's I'm, the worst uh, rapper yeah. in this generation? Yeah, because I remember back back in the day when we lived together, I was like. This dude has underground Gucci Mane albums. Like, not even the mainstream Gucci Mane albums. <laughs> the shit that, like, he recorded in his room was like, I'm going to put this on the internet, you know? But here's what people don't know about me. Yeah. I overcorrected as a as an adult because when I was a kid, I was a true hip-hop purist. I mean, I was one of the people that... Yeah. I grew up in New Orleans. I didn't like Bounce for most of my, you know, childhood. Me neither. Yeah. Um, I hated West Coast music until really? about N.W.A. Yeah. But I was an East Coast head. Um, yeah, I was a Def Jux head. Like, I mean, holy shit, Jeff Jux is too far. It, like, nobody yeah. could out like my hip hop credentials. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what? I'm like closing myself off to all these melodic, terrible rappers. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, Gucci Man started as my cleanup music. Like, I don't want to listen. I don't want to try to listen to the lyrics. I don't want to listen to Killer Priest while I'm cleaning my house. No, no, no. Because you know, but Gucci, he's, he's preaching. He get me through some baseboard work. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's how I started. Yeah. yeah, I just I was always like I realized that all these mu- all this music was related. So I remember like listening to only built for Cuban links, right? Yes. And then somebody was like, "You listen to that New York shit." And I was like, well, honestly, how is this different from a Young Jeezy album? They're both talking about selling crack. It's just they're talking about doing it yeah. <laughs> in different ways. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Different. So, yeah, I was I was into that. And sometimes I just want to get into some ignorant shit. Sometimes, There's no other way to say it. Yeah. I just want to hear some ignorant shit. It's just a part of the the duality. And I feel like the, the diversity of growing up in a hood, but also being around scholars. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, I, I can listen to my most depth to live quality. I can listen. Hell, shit. I listen to a lot of white ass music. You know what I'm saying? I listen to my Feist, my Sufjan Stevens, things like my Iron and Wine, you know? <laughs> yeah, Which yeah. Iron and Wine sounds like that should be MOP's name, but it's not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I listen to Iron and Wine. And, but then, you know, I on the same token, I listen to, you know, the West Side Guns and Freddie Gibbs, things like that, you know? Yeah. I've been joked. That like riding around, I ride around the city, man. I I bump BG and then the BGs. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So I mean, I, I got if you look at my Spotify playlist, I got folk playlist. I got uh, yeah. esoteric. I got classical. I got. Uh, I'm a big electronic head. When I went to college, I was yeah. a radio DJ. Um, I discovered Tricky and Bjork and Porter's Head and yes. Wagon Christ and Goldie. So, but you know, I. My first, I love all that, but you know, I'm a hip hop head first and foremost. Sidebar: My first meal in Chicago uh, was in the, was in a room where Tricky just popped up. Oh, I was in there with Io and Brady. There, we were like, "Is that Tricky? That is Tricky." I'm that so is, jealous. That was so weird, man. It was it was odd. I was like, "All right, welcome to Chicago." Those were my two concerts. Like, I got to see Wu Tang last year when it came to Seattle, nice. and then I wanted to see Tricky. I don't think I'll ever get to see Tricky, but at least I got to see Wu. It's dope. It's dope. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite playlist on on your Spotify? Um, it's my hot shit playlist. The hot shit playlist. Yeah. All right. Cool. cool, cool. It's four hundred songs and running. Oh and I shit! Just, yeah, yeah. Like. I consume like everybody got picked my favorite joints off the album. Yeah. 
and throw them on there. Just put them on there. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. I, I, that's my starred playlist. Like, I have a star playlist. Yeah, it's pretty much kind of like that. Um, I have a, I have a playlist that I enjoy, um, mainly because I, I argue with old people, <laughs> um, and so we always talk about like hip hop. They always talk about how hip hop is so disrespectful and misogynistic, all these things. And I was like, yo, man, what we do is sample. And who do we sample? You. You know what I'm saying? So like. Yeah, I got a soul playlist. Absolutely. I'll and, do it. Yeah. And I have an old school song playlist. Yeah. That's called Your Daddy Ain't Shit. <laughs> and it's great. All the songs are fucking terrible. Like all the songs are dope songs, but morally terrible. <laughs> and that's the that's the album I play. Yeah, I got. I'm usually I, around my family. Am I a good man? Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. I, like, and that's, you know. Hip hop. What people don't realize is I didn't learn about jazz in school. Um, well, I learned that, about jazz, yeah, through hip hop. Like I was like, "Who's that sample?" Is mm-hmm. Nina Simone. Everybody uh, assumes that if you live in New Orleans, you automatically know jazz. And some stuff, I'm not gonna lie, some stuff we take for granted. Facts. facts. But like how we really get into jazz is through sampling, or just or just like music. You know, oh, like our parents, grandparents' generation, music. Period. Mm-hmm. Like I mean. You know, like even rock and roll. You know when mm-hmm. you know when um, walk this way and 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 Puffy sampling Robert Page. I mean, yeah. hip hop has done more to kind of transfer that Absolutely. that generation of music down to us than any education. I, I completely agree. I remember um, myself and our, our good friend Thomas, our good friend Merck. Uh, Merck would always go crate digging. Yeah, and I would be right there with him, like, "Yo, dog, what you think of this?" And we'll just we'll just listen. And listen to old school songs until we can find a sample, but just also enjoying the vibe of the old school songs, right? And I end up listening to like a bunch of like random shit, you know what I'm saying? And just loving it. I mean, I think it's great. I learned about Willie Hutch from Three Six Mafia, right? Yes. I mean, I choose you. I mean, come on, shit. You know, so uh-huh. I I like I like hip hop, but you know, I'm at the point now where like I like to go to the yeah. source too. And, so. International Players Anthem is um, my wedding song. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Product Pat version go a little harder. Uh, yeah, like uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. The first version. Whatever. That sample is beautiful. That sample like, is you gorgeous. can't go wrong with that. You can't, man. Shout out to, six Shout out to Pimp C. Yeah. R.I.P. Pimp. Ooh, shit. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been a great conversation. It's I feel been like fun. We, yeah, man. We covered a lot of ground. Um, I look forward to you popping back up in the studio with me. I appreciate that. You had a very storied life, and I, I I really thank you for sharing that with us. I know that these things aren't easy, especially in this time, right? It's, yeah. it's hard for you to break away <laughs> and, and talk to me in general, but also be so open, and I appreciate you. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not used to talking about myself this much, <laughs> but um, it's fun, and I mean, it helps me learn more about myself. Yeah, and I hope, you know, people listening whatever experience get your Kanye on to you yeah it's fine yeah all right get your Kanye on all right everybody thank you all take care absolutely take care uh thank you all for listening remember that you can listen to Chris Talks on Spotify on SoundCloud um be sure to like us and follow us uh whenever you get a chance and when you're listening so that lets us know that you are listening and we'll keep this thing moving man so thank thank you Eblando Cooper for being here thank you again and it's been great uh, always good to talk to my friends uh, ladies and gentlemen thank you all for listening be good to your people bro peace out peace
This program is brought to you by On Purpose Recordings. Created and produced by Chris Blunt. Mixed and edited by Joff Gibbs.